Nope, we good, we good. I promise, we good. It, it, it went back like it was supposed to. It's just one of those mornings, amen. We give God thanks and praise um, for this day and for all that has gone forth thus far today and for the many things that Pastor Lisa has already named. I will just reiterate that um, as we prepare to read scripture and as we prepare to, um, to hear and receive the word that God has given, that this is not intended to encapsulate or touch everyone's experience, that it's just not possible to do that, but that I want to continue to name before we even begin that this day is very complex for so many of us and that here at Southeast Raleigh Table, we endeavor wholly as often as we can to hold space for us all. And so we are holding space with those who are joy-filled today, and we are holding space for those who are grieving today, and we are holding space for those who still may harbor or hold anger today. We are holding space, and we are trusting God with that space. Amen? Amen. So for some of you, this passage of scripture may be familiar. Um, Luke chapter 8, we'll start reading at verse 40, and we'll read through the end of the chapter, and it reads as follows. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, and for they were all waiting for him. Just then, there came a man named Jarius, a leader of the synagogue, and he fell at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, who was dying. And as he went, the crowds pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years, and though she had spent all she had on physicians, no one could cure her. And she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his clothes, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. Then Jesus asked, who touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and press in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I noticed that power had gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she could not remain hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and, now she had been, and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking, someone came from the leader's house to say, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher any longer. And when Jesus heard this, he replied, do not fear, only believe she will be saved. And when he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. And they were all weeping and wailing for her, but he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and called out, child, get up. Her spirit returned and she got up at once, and then he directed them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astounded, but he ordered them to tell no one what had happened. We're also gonna read Mark chapter five, verse 34, because it's necessary for the sermon. And it's a great way to read this verse. It reads as follows. And he said to her, daughter, 
Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Can we say thanks be to God? Thanks be to God. Um, I remember growing up as a little girl and watching talk show hosts um, get to a point where they really needed to boost their ratings. And it seemed like all of them did the exact same thing. They would go to the more dramatic flair of things. Well, a few of them did a little more than just go to the dramatic. I felt like they moved into a realm that may have just seemed like juicy gossip, but that in reality was really the exploitation of very deep rooted pain. People like Mari Povich and um, Jerry Springer and even a few of the other judge shows would have reoccurring guests, guests who would come and it would be the same thing. There would be two people arguing and fighting and the culminating moment came when they took a paternity test to determine who was the child's father. And I can remember watching those things and getting tired as a child, but now as an adult, I look back on those moments and I think to myself, what if that child saw that episode? Like what would it mean for them to see two people arguing, one they knew to be their mother and one they maybe thought to be their father, but they were determining whether or not their father was going to claim them. These kinds of messy, painful situations automatically bring up questions. Am I good enough? What's wrong with me? We from birth have a desire to be loved. We have a desire to belong. We have a desire to be claimed. And yes, we have a right to those things, a right to be supported at the most difficult moments of our life, even though everyone does not have that gift in their life. This is ruminating in our passage of scripture this morning. The father named Jarius has one daughter. She is 12 years old and he is very well respected in the community. He is a man of power. He is a man who is um, considered to be a religious leader. He carries a lot of weight. People would know him. And his daughter is dying, and he is all of a sudden facing the greatest fear of his life, and he cannot do anything to change it. She, on the other hand, is not even worthy enough to be called by her name. The woman who is not even mentioned by name, has been suffering since the time of this ruler's daughter's birth. For 12 years since this young girl was born, this woman has been hemorrhaging, she has been bleeding, and she has spent all of her money on every doctor she could find. She is now impoverished and no one could possibly heal her. She is by ritual considered unclean, probably spending most of these 12 years not even touched by other people. She is isolated and she is alone. And yet both of them, this father named Jarius and this woman whose name is not even mentioned, are struggling and seeking life. They both feel as if they have one hope and that one hope is this man named Jesus who they have heard can heal. 
And so Jarius makes his way, and I would imagine he has an easy route to Jesus. People know him. The crowd parts for him. Some people may even know that his baby girl is hurting, and so they make room and space for him to get to Jesus. On the other hand, this woman whose name is not even mentioned, she presses up through the crowd. She's trying to make her way. She has to push and fight every step of the way. The crowd bumps up against her. She falls because I imagine she's very weak, pain in different parts of her body. And perhaps she can see this father named Jarius now on his knees before Jesus begging. You see, propriety goes out the door when desperation enters in. The next moment he is rising and she sees Jesus begin to go with him. No, 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 wait. But she sees that she can reach out and just touch the hem or the fringe of his garment. And so she reaches out and immediately the blood within her shifts course. And she knows that she has been healed. This father named Jarius is now elated. For the first time in so many weeks, he can feel a bit of relief. The the master is coming with me to my house to see about my daughter, and that moment is snatched in an instant. As Jesus pauses and asks, who touched me? No one comes forward. Peter being crazy as Peter would be like, Jesus, all these people, Pick somebody. I guarantee you they touched you. What kind of question is that? He says, no, 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 no. Somebody touched me because I felt power. Leave me and enter them. This woman had no intention of actually causing a scene. She had no intention of actually being seen, but she knew in that moment that she was who Jesus was talking about. And so she took the courage, both trembling and afraid and scared and newly healed. And this woman whose name is not even mentioned makes her way back to Jesus, falls before him. She confesses before all these people all that had happened and why she had touched him and what had happened when she had touched him. And Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Just as that moment comes, Jarius, who has been witnessing this, and to um, his credit, he does not interrupt the healing of one in order to save his own, which speaks volumes about the potential of his spiritual and emotional maturity. This father who has been watching, probably screaming inside as his heart beats faster and faster is now approached by a member of his household telling him, don't bother. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Your your daughter just died. All of the grief begins to rise up and Jesus speaks immediately to it. He says, no, take a breath. Just believe she will be saved. They make their way to his house and Jesus creates intimate space, only allowing his closest disciples and the parents in the room. He comes face to face with this young girl. He takes her by the hand and he speaks to her, child, 
get up. Life re-enters her body and she comes and he gives instructions that she receive the things she needs the most, food. And he entrusts her to the care of her parents. I believe Jesus makes some very specific claims in this passage of scripture. And these are not claims that I wish for us to take and hold as kind of like steps towards a goal or claims of aspirations. That's not what this is about. But I need to name these claims, just simply name what rises in this passage. And my hope and my prayer has been that wherever you are, that you will be able to hear these claims process them as you need them, and receive exactly what it is that you need. So I'm not dictating to you that this is how fathers should be or that this is what we need to consider. I'm simply saying this is what is in the passage. And perhaps God may be speaking life to all of us in this moment. The first claim I think Jesus makes with his actions is that all have access to God our Father regardless of partiality. All have access. So much about this world is dictated by who we are, by who we know, or by what we can do for somebody. As a matter of fact, I would say perhaps some of the greatest evils have been committed based upon the fact that some are considered better and therefore more important than others. This is the hinging point of most justice efforts in our world. And it's so funny how fickle even we are on a daily basis around this issue. What we do because of who we like and what we do because of who we don't, right? Well, I was reminiscing the other day and I remember being in the third grade and when we had recess in the third grade, y'all will remember, some of y'all gonna be like, uh-huh, I remember Donna. Recess in the third grade, we would go out sometimes and we would have free play and those were the days that we loved. But then there were other days where our teacher would insist that we play team kickball, right? And what she decided was that each time we went out, she would choose two captains and the captains would what? Take turns choosing players on their team. Now reason would say that the basis of who they would choose would be solely based upon skill, right? It would make a lot of sense that, you know, they would wanna choose those who played kickball the best first, right? All the way down to the last. But as I was reminiscing on this, I realized that that wasn't always the criteria or the only criteria that people chose players based upon. As a matter of fact, most of the players were chosen not just based on skill, but also based upon whether or not you were somebody's friend, or whether or not somebody liked you, or whether or not you were popular in our class and in our school. And so often, the people who had the highest skill were also the people who were the most popular and the most liked, which meant that disproportionately the same kids usually got picked last. And on occasion, I could see a captain using their power to choose, and they would choose a person who would normally get picked last over someone who would get picked earlier because they wanted to get back at one of the higher profile people for a disagreement that they had had. I mean, it, it, it was an intriguingly um, and disturbingly um, really kind of um, product of socialization. 
And I can remember all of us hoping that we wouldn't be last to be picked. And in the in case that we were last or next to last, we would spend the entire game trying to prove to the other people that they should have picked us sooner. <laughs> right? Well, long story short, my teacher kind of caught on and she decided that, you know, we are going to even this out. And so about midway through the year, she decided that we were going to line everybody up randomly and we're just going to pick one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. Well, even then, you all, we found ourselves like looking down the line and counting ahead and trying to switch positions so that we could get on a specific team. Y'all, bias is strong. And this was explicit bias. Y'all, we knew what we were doing. How much stronger is implicit or unconscious bias that grips us all in ways that we never know? Jesus was saying very clearly in this passage that he is not subjected to the bias, to the power dynamics, and to the ways in which we pick and choose who's most important in society. Jesus, who was both fully human and fully divine, does some really interesting things in this passage. You see, Jairus was a very important person in culture. He had status. He had respect. He had people making space and room for him. His daughter would be considered a high-profile um, patient at a hospital in their community. And Jesus stops on his way to go see her, pauses in order to attend to a woman who wasn't even important enough for her name to be mentioned, who was poor, without family, who was unclean, and who was there all by herself, struggling. And he does this before the crowds. And then he doesn't just give her like this limited access. It's not enough for Jesus to just say, oh, you touched my garment, you kind of slipped in there, right? No, Jesus says, no, I want you to have full access. So what does he do? He calls her forward face to face and he speaks directly to her. He gives her very intimate access where she would have been cool just slipping in and moving out. But catch this, he doesn't just do this with this woman, he also does this with Jarius' daughter. He goes then to Jarius' house, he leaves the crowds, as in the passage before, he, he left the masses in order to cross over a sea in the storm to heal one man who had a legion of demons, only to turn right back around and come back. And now he is leaving the crowds once again to go see about this one little girl. And what does he do? He doesn't stand afar off, right? He doesn't do that. He enters her room. He holds her hand. He stands face to face with her. He speaks and life returns. Jesus was saying both publicly and privately, all have access to God our Father regardless of who you are, where you are, or what your status is. The second thing I believe Jesus is claiming through his actions is that the blessings of God our Father are not scarce. The blessings of God our Father are not scarce. 
have an auntie who makes the best strawberry pretzel dessert in the world. And she has gotten it down packed enough where she is convinced that she is not going to make large portions, right? She understands that in order for this to continue to be appreciated, she needs to keep fixing it in just this one little Pyrex dish, right? And so every Christmas, we are wondering why she doesn't make more. And she doesn't. It's kind of like, you know, the whole indoor stadium, Cameron and Duke, you know, why not make a bigger gym that defeats the purpose type of thing. And so she makes one Pyrex dish every Christmas, y'all. One. And I can remember everybody, you know, always being excited about this. But one year, I went up to get my dessert and I had waited too late. And that Pyrex dish was completely empty, like scraped corners, like there was no jello, there was no nothing, right? And then I noticed family members who had gotten some of the dessert but whose eyes were too big for their bellies, as our elder would say, had left some on their plate and were throwing it away. And it enraged me because that was my portion going into the trash. How dare you take more than you can eat and then not eat it? Just stuff yourself, doggone it, right? Throwing my portion away. And so I devised the plan the next year the next year, I remembered that thing. I mean, I remembered it, y'all. And while everybody else was in the regular line getting their mac and cheese and their chicken and their green beans, I was at the dessert table with a bowl scooping out my portion of the dessert. I covered it up real nice. I put it in the refrigerator. I went through the line. I ate. I rushed back upstairs, and I got another portion before everybody could get there. What I didn't realize was that my grandma had seen me put that bowl in the refrigerator. And so grandma says to me, she said, Donna, in your dessert in the refrigerator? I said, no, grandma, that's for later. I said, last year, they ate all of the dessert before I could get up here, and then they started throwing it away, grandma. I said, uh-uh. I said, that's for later. This is for now. She's like, mm-hmm. She's like, so this year, you're getting more than your share, which means somebody else got to go without theirs. And I stood there looking dumb, right? <laughs> and I was like, you know, I really don't want to go get my dessert out of the refrigerator. But grandma kind of, you know, pushed me to do the right thing. This is what I learned. This is what I realized. There are many times in life when there are things that are limited. And yet, if everybody just takes their portion and not more, it's still enough to go around. We live in a fear-based culture that has intentionally taught us that there is not enough of what people need in order to survive and have what they need in terms of necessities. And that, y'all, is a lie. Now, whether or not we have to change our way of life for everyone to have what they need is something completely different. But whether or not there is enough for everybody to be sustained, yes, there is enough. And so what scarcity mentality has done is it has been, it has been given to us, it has been spoon-fed to us in order to justify the excess of some and the continual, perpetual lack of others. You all, even when there are limited rations, there are ways for everyone to get a piece. 
But when we look at our God, that is not even the case. When it comes to the blessings of God, there is more than enough, right? More than enough. Jesus was saying, I can pause and heal her, and that doesn't mean that I can't heal her too. Jesus had enough for both. But you all, we, we kind of get in this place and we don't realize just how unreasonable it is, right? As we try to hold on to what little we got, like somebody gonna take it, right? We don't realize how unreasonable it is. I mean, this is like meeting someone that you really click with and you're like, oh yeah, you could be my best friend, but in order for me to have room in my heart to love you, I gotta stop loving somebody else in my life. When have you ever said that? When have you ever met somebody and said, in order for me to make space and love you in my heart, I gotta stop loving my baba, or I gotta stop loving my uncle, or I gotta stop loving my daddy. Oh, but gosh, let me pick which friend I gotta stop loving in order to love you. How many times parents wonder, do I have enough room because I love my children so much and then they get another child and then bam, there's more than enough space. Y'all, God is love and love is infinite. You know what infinite means? It means it never stops. And the blessings of God flow directly out of the love of God, which means those blessings are limitless. Y'all, the blessings of God our Father are not scarce. So we can rejoice when someone is blessed because it does not mean that God automatically had to pull that blessing from me. Finally, I believe that the actions of Jesus claims that God our Father not only wishes to give life, but to sustain it. Not just give life, but to sustain it. 12 is very significant in this passage. 12 years marks completion. And at the beginning of this passage, the question that is kind of looming is, does this mean 12 years, um, meaning the completion of life fully for these two people? Or does it mean the completion of illnesses that would have normally taken their life? And so what we see then is that Jesus does in fact give life. My question is, does Jesus give more than just life? Well, when I was in college, um, and I'm sorry, all of the examples just happened to be about me. This, I just kind of realized that you kind of try to avoid that so that you don't seem too arrogant, but have some grace with a sister, oh my Lord. Anyway, I was in college. And I was home, I had come home to go to church and my two roommates had decided that they were going to make crab legs. And so they went and got crab legs and they boiled them. And we had one of those, you know, older stoves. I, I imagine they still make them, you know, the ones where the eyes come out and you got the little tray underneath and everything. Well, the crab legs boiled over. And so they cleaned everything up, they enjoyed their crab legs. When I got back early Monday morning, the kitchen smelled horrible, like rotten fish. And so I'm like, what in the world happened? They were like, Donna, oh my goodness, we, we made crab legs and they boiled over, but we cleaned everything up, but we still smell it. Like, we don't know what to do. I said, okay. I said, so you clean the stove? I said, yes. I said, you clean the trays? Yeah, they said, we lifted up the eyes, we cleaned the trays out. I said, did you take the eyes out and the trays out and clean the stove underneath? And they said, the eyes come out? 
Aha! And so we were able to clean all of that rank, rancid water underneath the eyes. The original cleaning looked enough, looked like it was enough, but in actuality, it wasn't. Jesus goes to this little girl's house. He speaks to her, life comes into her, and what is the first instruction he gives? To feed her. Give her something that's going to sustain and strengthen the life that I just gave her. And then he entrusts her. He entrusts her to parents, to a father who was willing to put all of his pride aside as a highly respected man publicly falling down before him and begging for his little girl's life. He says, I'm going to entrust her to you. He didn't just give life. He was sustaining it. He was speaking things that would sustain it. But does he also do this for the woman with the issue of blood? Well, let's go back and let's look. When we go back and we look a ways, Jesus calls her forward and he says to her, he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Why does he need to say this again if we know that she was immediately healed after she touched the fringe of his garment earlier in the passage? Why is he repeating this. Well, the reason we read Mark's gospel in the New King James Version is because what we find the word affliction can mean disease, but it can also mean the cause of a disease or an illness. Could he have been saying, go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Go in peace and don't have worry that this will ever return because right now I'm healing the cause. But now the question becomes, how did he do that? What was he doing? What was it that he said that made that so? Well, there are scholars who believe, who have studied this passage, who believe that this woman's illness was really an outpouring of the kind of social and cultural stress that she was enduring day after day after day. That the stress of living in a very paternalistic world, apart from family, apart from um, a male who would oversee or who would um, provide and advocate for her, as was the custom of the culture, um, being sick was one thing, but then perpetually not having what she needed continued to make this illness um, have to find a way to press its way out, and it pressed its way out through her hemorrhaging, that it was stress that was the cause. Well, Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, if you haven't read her book, The Deepest Well, I highly suggest it. In this book, she talks very deeply about her research and the research of others that connects particularly childhood adversity to the stress response systems of our body and how it highly elevates our likelihood of chronic illness in adulthood. Y'all, Jesus says to this woman, Daughter, your faith has made you well. I cannot find one other occurrence in the New Testament where Jesus directly calls someone else daughter. The woman with the infirm spirit, he calls her daughter of Abraham, which is 
true for that context. Now you can go and you say, if you find one more, please let me know, but I promise you, it will still be rare enough for this point to stick. Okay? How many times have we seen or heard Jesus refer to God, his Father in heaven? But here, Jesus literally assumes with her the role of Father. And what I am suggesting to you is that God was speaking directly to what we now know medically impacts our stress in our bodies. That by calling her daughter, he was healing and repairing the very thing or the very stresses that had caused this illness to start with. He was starting this process of healing and abandonment and healing of loneliness and healing of poverty all through claiming her. He claimed her when nobody else had. He claimed her. He said, you belong with me. I don't care what all them other people have done. He was saying, I am sustaining the life I gave you so that when you leave here and your mind wants to go to how alone you are, you're going to remember that, no, you're mine. He was reclaiming her memories. He was reclaiming all of the things that had created this for her. And here's the crux. Here's the crux, y'all. To be denied or rejected by those who rightfully should be our people literally stabs at the heart of our sense of self-worth and identity. And our loss of self-worth and identity is more than just a loss of like a quality of life. If we have a misplaced sense of self-identity and self-worth, then we are always going to be wondering, am I enough? We are always going to be wondering, should I even try to reach for my dreams? We're always going to be settling for chaos rather than peace. We're always going to be um, looking at life while living in death. It literally impacts whether or not we fight or whether or not we lay down and give up. Jesus was saying to this woman, you are worthy to be loved and I love you no matter what. One of the definitions of claim is a demand is a demand for what is rightfully one's own. Jesus was literally saying and claiming to her, I am demanding that you embody what is rightfully already yours, immeasurable worth and value. Jesus claimed her. He was saying, you belong with me. And Jesus claimed you. And Jesus claims me. And that means, y'all, that we will always belong with God. Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, this world often pushes against the things that we've learned and been taught. It pushes against the ways in which we seek to be positive and it keeps trying to press us back into the negative. God, it allows us to sometimes see the realities of life and it blocks sometimes the voice that you are seeking to put in our ear. 
God, sometimes it is so incredibly hard to actually grasp and hold on to the reality and the truth that there is nothing we can do to make you love us more and nothing we can do to make you love us less, that we've just got it. And so God, in this moment, we aren't trying to figure out the steps of how to do that. We're simply asking now, as we are open and vulnerable before you, we're asking you, almighty God, to give each of us what we need to embody this right. It is a right that you have given to us when you created us that we might lay claim to what you have given to us, immeasurable value, immeasurable worth, that we may live boldly and humbly, that we may proclaim and be exactly who we were created to be, that we may be reminded that we always have access to you and that no one is denied that access, that your blessings are not scarce, that there is more than enough to go around. But may we also be reminded, God, that you would not give us life and then not give us what we need to sustain life. And so God, wherever you need to meet us individually right now, God, please, by the power and the presence of your spirit, meet us where we are. And then, Almighty God, allow that to expand and to grow collectively, that as your body, that as your people, that as those who proclaim life to this a dying world that is desperately in need of redemption, that we may be worthy and that we might be healthy witnesses, that you are God who does what we cannot, who gives us life and love, worth and value, and that we belong with you and that we may be witnesses to this world that they too belong with you. We thank you, we praise you, and we ask these things to be done. So it is and so it shall be. In the name of he who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.